The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. So our film embeds with two attempted escapes out of North Korea. And the goal in making it for me was to bring people up close and personal to North Koreans because there are 26 million of them living inside the walls of North Korea and we really don't get to hear from them. I wanted to do something experiential that really put people in their shoes and showed firsthand the stakes of what they're going through both in their country and in attempting to escape. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Madeline Gavin, director of Beyond Utopia. The film had its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Audience Award in the U.S. Documentary section. It then went on to screen at this year's Telluride Film Festival and opened the Camden International Film Festival. Director Madeline Gavin has edited award-winning narrative and documentary films, that have premiered at prestigious festivals around the world. She edited and directed the Netflix original documentary, City of Joy, which centers around a safe haven for women survivors in the middle of violence-torn Eastern Congo. Beyond Utopia focuses on North Korea, which continues to be one of the most closed and brutal societies. In particular, Madeline follows two stories, that of Soyeon Lee, who herself was able to escape the North Korean regime for life in South Korea, and now is trying to get her son out so that he can join her. The other story follows the Roe family, which is a group of about five people, including an 80-year-old grandmother, who are desperately trying to leave North Korea with the assistance of Pastor Kim, who's based in South Korea, and through his organization and his network, has helped over a thousand people to escape North Korea for freedom. The film is eye-opening, it's devastating, it's gripping, and I think given how little information is known about North Korea is extremely important. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Madeline Gavin, director of Beyond Utopia. Madeline Gavin, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And congratulations on Beyond Utopia, which is an incredibly powerful film and an important film. Thank you. So let's start with the beginning. How did you first come in contact with the human rights activist, Pastor Kim, who's the central or one of the central subjects of the film and who has helped over a thousand defectors to escape from North Korea. When I was originally approached about this project, I was approached by my producers who had acquired the rights to Hyunseo Lee's memoir, The Girl with Seven Names, which was about her defection, which had happened in the 90s. And I read it and it was really haunting and just kind of cracked open this curiosity in me about North Korea. 
which led to months and months of research, very deep research in every direction. And I discovered a few things. I discovered hidden camera footage out of North Korea that was actually showing what real life is like for 26 million people, not what we see on the news, which is essentially what Kim Jong-un would like us to see, but what real life was like. And I also discovered how difficult it was to hear the voices of these 26 million people. And after many months of research, I realized this film had to be made, but I wanted it to be something not, you know, a biopic about Hyuncio's escape in the 90s, but rather something that would really bring us up close and personal to the people of North Korea in a way that had never been done. And I started shooting with Hyuncio in South Korea, always looking for this present tense component. My dream was possibly to follow an attempted escape, but that seemed like a dream. Hyuncio and I would brainstorm. At a certain point, after a couple of trips to South Korea, I read about Pastor Kim and I knew I had to seek him out. And that took this film in a whole nother direction when he and I hooked up together as partners on this project. And I assume that Hyuncio knew of Pastor Kim and his efforts. Is that right? She did. She knew of Pastor Kim and some other organizations inside South Korea. But when she and I were brainstorming, we were brainstorming in a more personal way about some stuff to do with her and other people. She knew not so much the advocates or the people in the Underground Railroad. So I actually heard about Pastor Kim first and foremost through an article that I read. And then when I brought that to Hyuncio, she was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So yes, there's the defector community. Pastor Kim is not a defector, but he's part of that community because he has helped so many North Koreans. That community is actually fairly small inside South Korea. So Hyunso's story, which is woven throughout the film, is in itself very, very powerful. And she is an incredibly articulate voice in terms of not just her own story, but the story of North Koreans and North Korea in general. And she provides some historical context and cultural perspective throughout the film. And in addition, the film itself, you provide an, an additional historical overview of Korea, North and South. I think for a lot of Americans, even to this day, many folks don't seem to know as much about the history of Korea, the Korean War, and the current situation in Korea in spite of the fact that millions of Americans served in the Korean War, tens of thousands died, and it certainly is in the news when it comes to North Korea's nuclear program and other issues. But would you agree that Korea is perhaps, is not as well known from a historical perspective as perhaps it should be? Absolutely. And that is why, as I was putting this film together, shooting this film, there were certain things that I felt like I needed to present just to give context for a, what life is like, B, why people are leaving, C, the genesis of this country, because so much of that has to do with the whole relationship between North Korea and the United States, obviously North Korea and South Korea, actually North Korea and China and Russia as well. Yeah, I mean, in the United States, we call the Korean War the Forgotten War, and it literally is the Forgotten War. It's so crazy how little we know about it. And it is the genesis of everything in terms of the relationships between North Korea and other countries, and in terms of the whole start of the country and the mythology, the ideology, the deity status of the Kim regime. This all comes out of this. 
yeah, I felt like I had to give some basic overview of that just for people to simply feel grounded in the story that we were following in the present tense with these people. Another thing you do to ground the viewer is you tell them what to expect in terms of footage. There's on-screen text that says footage is shot by the filmmakers, her subjects, and operatives in the underground network. The film contains no recreations. Why was it important to you to take this creative approach to the footage and include this statement? So we were able to shoot in places that nobody ever goes, literally the border of North Korea and China, which is just one of the most dangerous places in the world, a place that nobody wants to go and nobody really can go. And certainly you can't shoot there. So we were able to do that because of Pastor Kim and because of the Underground Railroad. When we first got footage from the border of North Korea and China, which was shot by a member of the Underground Railroad, a farmer, I showed it to a friend. It was so mind blowing. And I showed it to a friend of mine and she said, oh, those recreations are amazing. And I thought, oh my God, of course, we're going to assume in our culture, in our world, and in, in what we see on our media, et cetera, we're going to assume these are recreations unless I make it very clear otherwise. And so that's why I put that statement at the top of the film, because I wanted to make sure that everyone watching this knew, no, this is actually unprecedented real and we're really following these people from this incredibly dangerous and really remote place. One of the things I learned from the film is the extent to which the most dangerous part of this journey for North Korean defectors is not crossing the border from North Korea to China, as difficult as that is, but occurs once they get into China. Because if they're caught, North Korean authorities will be alerted by the Chinese and they will most certainly be sent back to North Korea. Why is the Chinese government so particularly harsh and unbending in its treatment of North Korean defectors? Yeah, this is a very good question because obviously if China changed their policy, everything would change, right? The Korean Peninsula is such a hotbed of competing forces and has been since the beginning of the split between the two, when you know Korea, which was one country, was split into two. On the one hand, you've got South Korea and Japan and with the United States very much involved. On the other hand, you've got North Korea, China, and Russia very much involved. And neither side wants to give an inch. China is very aligned with North Korea and unfortunately are unwilling to allow people who make it into China from North Korea to seek asylum or to move through their country. So yeah, the border of North Korea and China, which is the way that every defector basically goes, because the border between South Korea and North Korea is basically impassable. And there's estimated to be more than 2 million mines and minefields there. It's highly militarized. It's called the demilitarized zone, but it's actually one of the most militarized zones in the world. So defectors go over this more than 800 mile river border into China and that's very dangerous. Kim Jong-un has put a shoot to kill order on the river. You know, it's extremely dangerous to cross the river, but it is the shortest part of your journey. Once you get into China, if you make it, you have thousands of miles to go and several countries to go through before you can be assured of any kind of freedom. And if you're caught, as you said, in China and in some of the other countries around there, you will be imprisoned and repatriated to North Korea. 
And yeah, that incredibly circuitous route was another kind of revelation that you have to pass through China, Vietnam, Laos, finally to get to safety in Thailand. So your film follows two main storylines of those trying to defect from North Korea. One involves the Roe family, which consists of an 80-year-old woman, her daughter, her son-in-law, and her two grandchildren. The other story is that of Soyeon Lee, who herself defected from North Korea years ago, but is now trying to get her son, who is still in North Korea, to help to arrange for his safe passage to South Korea, where they can be reunited. So Pastor Kim, who we mentioned earlier, who's part of this underground network, he's helping the Roe family. He's not involved with helping Soyeon, which has tragic consequences later on, as we learn. But how did you end up following these two stories primarily? When I met Pastor Kim, there was a long process of him and I getting to know each other, many months. He had been approached by many filmmakers in the past and also different networks and had some not great experiences, very, you know, skeptical. So we spent a lot of time getting to know each other. And many months in, we basically decided or discovered really that we did trust each other and that we were interested in doing the same thing, which was to really, as I said, crack open this world and really bring us face to face with North Koreans who have been ignored, forgotten, not acknowledged, whatever, in the 70 plus years that they have existed inside that hermetically sealed country. So once he and I earned each other's trust and decided to team up together, we decided that we should embed with two escapes because in documentary, you never know, you know what's going to happen. And we decided that we would try to do this with the next two groups who contacted Pastor Kim. And these were the next two groups. In Soyeon's case, her son was brought over the river by North Korean brokers. And the idea was that he would meet up with the Underground Railroad at a certain place and time in China. Sadly, he never got to that place or that time. And what we discovered later was that one of the North Korean brokers who had brought him over the river into China had actually made a deal with the Chinese police to turn him in. And he was turned in. He was imprisoned in China. And tragically, he was one of a very few number of people who were actually repatriated back to North Korea during the pandemic. Most North Koreans who were caught in China remained in prison until just recently. And that's a whole nother thing. Now China is repatriating a lot of people and there's a lot of protests going on about that right now. But tragically, he was repatriated before North Korea actually stopped accepting defectors back. But the idea was to have also followed his attempted escape if he had made it to the meeting point. The key to aiding defectors is this entire underground network of people who are involved. Can you briefly just explain the different parts and players in this network? So the Underground Railroad, as we call it, is very vast. And it's got several components, but the major two components are brokers who are doing this for money to make a living and don't necessarily care one way or the other about the actual defectors. Like they look at this as, as a means of making money. Now, obviously to varying degrees, there are some brokers who, who do care, but this is really about making a living. And then there's the other 
major part of the Underground Railroad, which is more spiritually aligned with the cause of helping people to find some degree of freedom. Some of those people are associated with missionary work, with churches, and some of them are not religiously affiliated at all, but are activists and more about the cause. You know, this is very vast. It goes through many countries in Asia. And for the Roe family, for the escape that we followed, there were more than 50 of these individuals involved in that attempted escape. Wow. I had no idea it was that many. Yeah. And it makes it all the more miraculous when a defection ultimately is successful. This role of the brokers really fascinates me. It seems like a ethically, morally precarious job. And, you know, as you mentioned, and Pastor Kim says in the film, they're doing it for the money, but they seem to exist in this gray area. And you don't quite always know who you're dealing with. You know, what was it like for you as the filmmaker to get to know this world of these brokers and perhaps meet some of them or talk to them? This whole experience was the most meaningful, mind-blowing of my career on so many levels. In terms of the the brokers, everything really came through Pastor Kim. He really was a line producer on this film and an excellent one. He is the one who helped us to figure out how to, in a safe way that didn't put any extra attention on these escapes, document them along the way using farmers, brokers, family members, us as filmmakers. We had a broker out of South Korea who was shooting some of the footage. And then we had people along the way. In China, you know, none of us went to China. It's much too dangerous. First of all, Pastor Kim is no longer able to go into China because he's been warned. He's been known by the regime for 23 years. He was warned in 2009 that he could be kidnapped into North Korea if he ever stepped foot in China again. So he's not going to go into China. He could also draw attention to the family or anyone else if he went in because he is so well known. Likewise with us, we obviously were not going to go into China and draw attention to what was going on. So in China, the only people who shot were the Underground Railroad and one family member of the Roe family who had already defected and had gone into China to meet his family because he wanted to travel with his mother, who is the 80-year-old who you speak of. But all of this was the layers of figuring this out from country to country, from leg to leg, because even within the country, there were many different groups of brokers along the way, from farmers to actual brokers to this. And we always had more than one van going. All of this was really arranged through Pastor Kim, and then the Underground Railroad, and then everything was vetted through like the activism world in South Korea and the United States and Japan, policy in South Korea and the United States in terms of safety, security, again, not drawing attention. It was quite complicated. We could never have done it without Pastor Kim, obviously. You couldn't go into China, but you did go into Vietnam, correct? Yeah, so we were able to go into Vietnam, Laos, the border of Laos and Thailand. We were on the river, obviously South Korea we were in. On the boat going into Thailand, it was only, we were on the riverside of the Laotian side, but on the boat was the family. 
Pastor Kim, who has made a commitment to his God to go wherever he possibly can. China is the, now the one exception in terms of where he goes. But he even goes on that boat, even though he has been shot at on that boat in the past. He's absolutely terrified every time he does it. But he feels he made this commitment. And he has to go. So the family, Pastor Kim, and then one of the Laotian brokers was on the boat. And the lead broker for the entire escape all the way through was on the boat. And he was actually shooting on the boat. That broker was the one shooting on the boat. We were shooting on the river, on the river's edge. And you were there yourself? Yeah. Me and one of my producers were there. And from a logistical point of view, were you using fixers? Were you using other folks to help you? What was it like just from a directorial point of view? There were many quote unquote fixers involved, but everything did come through both the activism world and people involved in the Underground Railroad, even people who are not actually in Pastor Kim's organization, but are involved with the Underground Railroad, and then primarily Pastor Kim's vast network. They were mo most of our fixers came as a part of that. And Pastor Kim really amazingly helped to juggle all of that. One of the most extraordinary people in the film is Soyeon Lee, who is trying desperately to get her son out of North Korea. Spoiler alert, she's not successful, as you mentioned, but we still get to see her perspective, her side of things as she's frantically talking with brokers and trying to send money and just trying to do whatever she can. I'm assuming that you did end up spending time with her in South Korea. What was your relationship like with her? Soyeon has become, really, we're all, the Roe family, Soyeon, Hyansia, we're all extremely close. But Soyeon has become a very close friend of mine. She's been in the United States most of the last two and a half months advocating for her son, protesting in front of the Chinese embassy. She's approached and written letters to the North Korean regime. She's been all over Washington, Boston, California, New York, everywhere, London. I was in London with her just a couple of weeks ago. But documenting Soyeon's struggle to find out what happened to her son and witnessing the excruciating pain that she has gone through, went through, continues to go through, was, you know, the most difficult thing I've ever experienced. Obviously, it pales in comparison to what she's been through. But yes, we were shooting with Soyeon really up until a few weeks before we premiered, because in both of these stories, this was the other thing is with Soyeon, okay, she gave us permission to use her story. However, because of everything going on with her son and not knowing what was actually going on with her son and getting pieces of information out bit by bit by bit, painfully slow, multiple brokers and trying to figure out what's true, what's not true out of North Korea, which is a very difficult thing to determine. That story was changing all the time. Like we didn't have definitive answers for a long time. And I wanted to make sure that Soyeon had the right to decide she didn't want to be a part of this film up until the last minute. So I was shooting with her up until a few weeks before we premiered and editing multiple versions of the film in case she changed her mind at the last minute and didn't want to be a part of it. But the Roe family, also consent is obviously an issue. You've got a family of five fled across the river into China, right? Because their lives were at risk, literally, inside North Korea. They had to leave. They fled. Here they are in China. They don't know anything about the outside world. 
they haven't been taught anything about the outside world. You cannot expect them to give a proper consent to be filmed, to be in a to be in a movie. And so likewise with them, we went through the entire shooting of this. The Underground Railroad does shoot a lot of what they do, not to the extent that you know, we did, but they do shoot a lot of what they do. They keep cameras hidden along the border, North Korea and China. And they do that in order to get some of this footage of people escaping into North Korea to educate North Koreans about the reality of defection, about the reality of the outside world, et cetera. But in terms of consent, you know, we went into this following this entire story, knowing that if the Roe family didn't want us to use any of it, we couldn't. So it was like the whole film was like this risk of we're doing this with no idea if we'll even have a film at the end of it. But when I was explained or talking to my producers about why we have to do it, there was no other way to do it. Like what we were able to do, thanks to everyone involved, was unprecedented. And the only way we could even attempt to do it was to risk not having a film at the end. But there was no other way. But when, you know, talking about Soyeon, yes, I was sh shooting with her up until a few weeks before the premiere. We've been with her so much since she was at the premiere. She's been, as were the Roe family and Pastor Kim, she's been here. Mama Roe was actually here two days ago. I was with her in Los Angeles. But no, it was unbearably painful. And I will say, Soyeon, right now, her activism and what she's trying to do for her son she feel this is her way of connecting, of reaching blindly into the walls of that country to try to connect to the hope that her son is alive, the hope that she will maybe one day see him again. And her activism now is what's like fueling that hope. It's, it's, it's so meaningful to her, that energy she's putting into that. The Roe family, and this is true of all people in North Korea, the level of familiarity with the West and Western technology and culture is so limited that we see some extraordinary moments, such as when the Roe family is in the safe house in Vietnam, I believe, and they encounter a flat screen TV and a certain kind of shower. And they're basically like, what are these things? They've never experienced them before, clearly. It's one of those moments where you're like, wow, the extent to which people in North Korea are shut off from the rest of the world in terms of culture, in terms of technology and so on is amazing. Yeah. Grandma thought that the flat screen TV was a blackboard. The other thing that was so extraordinary and so mind blowing was most people, if they do meet a defector, it's after they've gotten to South Korea, you know, been assimilated a little bit, learned a little bit about the world in South Korea, the, out, the world outside of North Korea. What was unbelievably so extraordinary here was we were meeting the family so shortly after they left North Korea. And I think it's really unprecedented. And so that clash of cultures, mythologies, especially since North Koreans are you know, brought up from day one to believe that the United States is their, not only their fiercest enemy, but that we literally, Americans do not exist for any purpose other than to try to hurt North Koreans. So, you know, to be face to face with Americans and South Koreans, because South Koreans are their second most fierce enemy, South Koreans, Japanese would be their second and third. But yes, we were an American and South Korean crew. And it was extraordinary 
to try to get to know each other amidst all those longstanding mythologies and perceptions. It also plays out when you're doing a sit-down interview with Grandma Rowe. For quite a while, she's basically spouting the North Korean line, talking about Kim Jong-un with sort of reverence and respect. And it's her daughter, I believe, that's just saying, hey, you don't need to do that anymore. You can speak the truth. It's okay. But it still takes her quite a while to get to that point. And then you see the dam break a little bit. Again, it's another way in which you show that the complete control over information, communications, broadcasting, any kind of news media is total in North Korea. Whatever the propaganda machine is putting out, that's what people are absorbing. I mean, if you live right near the border with China inside North Korea, you may pick up a cell signal. You may be able to make a short phone call if you have the money to pay a broker to help you facilitate that. You may get media that is being smuggled into the country, you know, South Korean soap operas, other kinds of media that reveal pieces of the outside world. You may not believe it's true. A lot of North Koreans think that's propaganda. If they see like a South Korean TV show, they don't believe that's true. But if you live inland in North Korea, you will see none of that. You will know none of that. The only thing you have to go on is what you're being told. There's so many levels to what you're being told, but one of them is that you live in the best country in the world. And that even though people in North Korea, yes, it's a life of endurance and there's not like luxury time, but they do believe that the rest of the world is worse off. It's all relative, right? And because that's all that they're told, that's all that they know. So while you were making this, of course, the pandemic happened and it wreaked havoc, I'm sure, on your production, but more importantly, on the, the world of defectors. We see some of that in the film, but how did the pandemic change things? We were in South Korea, actually, when the pandemic hit, and I was shooting one of those cameras with Pastor Kim when he was receiving these desperate calls from inside North Korea after China was basically paralyzed and the river was shut down even more severely than ever before. Not only was the river shut down, though, even if you as a defector got across the river to China, China was shut down. So there was no movement. The Underground Railroad was decimated, basically. Brokers who were doing this just for money obviously had to turn their attention elsewhere to make a living. Those who were part of the Underground Railroad who were doing it for the cause or spiritual concerns, whatever, they also had to do something. There was no movement. And so everything was destroyed. The people dissipated, fled in different directions. Over the last 10 months or so, the railroad has been slowly rebuilding. People have been joining forces again. Routes have been initiated. The routes always change, by the way, depending on what's going on politically at any moment. But routes have been pursued and mapped out. And Pastor Kim has managed to actually help some people out. I was on a Zoom with him a couple of weeks ago, and he was in Southeast Asia helping a group out. So it is slowly starting back up, but it's you know extremely rickety in terms of China, because as I said, so many North Koreans who were stuck inside China, let's say they got over the river, pandemic hits, China is paralyzed. 
stuck in China who were then caught over the period of two years and put into prison. And most of them were not repatriated to North Korea during that time. There were like 2,600 of those people who China was basically about to repatriate. A couple of weeks ago, they repatriated 600 of them, knowing what the outcome for those people will be, that this is basically death, right? Now there's another 2,000 that China is planning to repatriate, and that's why there's a lot of protesting going on right now against the Chinese government, begging them not to repatriate these people. So far, China has not listened. This is really all about the underground, led by people like Pastor Kim and others. Where is the U.S. government in any of this? I mean, are they doing anything behind the scenes? Are there any negotiations at all happening? It seems like not something that certainly was on the radar when President Biden and Xi Jinping just had their summit uh, yesterday. But what's the U.S. government's role, if at all, in this? Actually, the U.S. government and South Korea and Japan, they are bringing up the issue of repatriation with China. And the administration in South Korea right now is talking about human rights inside North Korea a lot and repatriation in a way that the former administration in South Korea was not, sadly. They were more sort of placating, doing a little bit of the Trumpy, like, you know, trying to engage Kim Jong-un in the hopes of I don't know what, because Kim Jong-un will never give up his nuclear weapons. Clearly, North Korea would not exist as a country, and he knows that if he ever were to give them up. So I'm not really sure what that dance was about. But there is now attention by the UN, by South Korea, by parts of the United States, not so much in that summit in San Francisco, but South Korea, Japan, and the United States are taking a much harder line against North Korea and toward China. That said, China and North Korea are creating a stronger alliance with Russia right now. The two sides are becoming more and more entrenched, and it's hard to know what's going to come of this. But the good news is at least we are talking about human rights now. And obviously, we need to be talking about that all the time, every time North Korea is mentioned. So after making it across the Mekong River into Thailand, the Roe family is safe. And then seven months later, they're resettled in Seoul into an apartment. It's a very happy scene. But at the same time, in this parallel universe, Soyeon's received word that her son has been sent to the gulag, and there's no chance he will ever get out is what she's told. And that's her own experience. So she pretty much knows that's the case. It's just the the levels of irony that these two scenes are playing out in the same city of Seoul is kind of heartbreaking. And just in terms of you as the filmmaker, balancing these two divergent worlds, emotional worlds, actual worlds, how did that kind of play through your creative process, emotional well-being as you were making and finishing the film? Again, it's been the journey of a lifetime and 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 the heartbreak of a lifetime. When we, when Pastor Kim and I decided that we should embed with the next two groups who contacted him, we had no idea that they would be these diametrically opposed. These are like the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. Sadly, Soyeon's experience is actually more common. 
most people who defect from North Korea defect as one person, possibly two at the most, but usually one, and they're leaving family behind, often with the intention of bringing the family members out later, but those intentions don't always come through. So many defectors in South Korea and in other countries live life never seeing their family again, and often never even speaking to their family again, never even knowing if they're alive or dead for the rest of their lives. So tremendous depression, guilt, so much difficulty. The Roe family is very unusual. Most people do not defect as a family of five. And if they do, we may never hear from them because more often than not, they're probably caught and repatriated. So this was the best case scenario where you leave as a family unit and you're all together. Like you're not having that heartbreaking, wrenching experience of not ever knowing if your mother, your brother, your sister, your daughter is alive. It was just happenstance that these two stories were filled, the, really the two extremes of the spectrum. And emotionally, it was was so difficult. But my goal was just, I, I felt like I have to try to do justice to both of these stories, to Soyan, to these people, and to the other 26 million people of North Korea, really, because hopefully these stories will resonate for audiences that there's millions more who are going through what these people went through in North Korea. And there are tens of thousands more like Soyan who are going through what Soyan has been going through in South Korea. And we need to pay attention to them. And is there any update on her son? The last that she has heard that we have tried to verify, again, it's very difficult to verify anything out of North Korea, but from multiple sources, we have heard that he is alive, but he is in the gulag. And that is basically a death sentence. I interviewed one person in the film, he's in the film, who did manage to get out of a gulag. He's one of maybe three people, known people who ever got out of a gulag and made it out of the country. But there are various degrees of political prison camp. And the one that Soyan's son is in is basically like, there's really no, barring some miracle, which is what she's hoping for, there's no getting out. So for you, as you make your next films and go on with your career, is there one takeaway for you in terms of the process of making this film or the people you met or anything along the way that really will stick with you? So many things will stick with me. As I said, we, we become sort of family. I think we're going to have relationships with each other that will last a lifetime. It's been just I, I, on so many levels, meeting people from halfway around the world who we would never have met each other, right? We barely even knew. We don't know anything about North Koreans for the most part here in the United States. They certainly don't know anything really about us. To have become so close has been, I, I don't know that I'll ever have an experience like this again. The one thing I've felt a lot in my work, and this definitely is true here, is the more specific, the more universal. You go into one little tidbit of a story and it can resonate, you know, it can ripple out over miles and millions of people, et cetera, as opposed to like, you know, talking about statistics and this and that and the other thing. And that is something in my work that I felt, and I will take it forward, that to go deeply into something, to bring us up close and personal to something can hopefully affect change. And I, 
I just hope that in every country in the world, when we mention North Korea, we talk about the, the people and the human rights abuses. And, and when we mention China, we talk about repatriation every single time, because I think that can also have a ripple effect. Well, your film is beyond extraordinary. I think it will have a ripple effect itself. And I want to congratulate you on the film and just thank you for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. And finally, do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves? I have a few, but one that really stands out for me is The Collective, Romanian documentary 2019 by Alexander Nanau. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but and it, I'm sure it has been seen. It's won some awards, but I also think it can't be seen enough. It's one of the strongest documentaries I've ever seen in my life. It's about the just horrible state of the healthcare system inside Romania and the corruption involved in that. And it's wrenching and thrilling and riveting and heartbreaking and just an excellent film. Top Docs is a production of Wooly Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike. 